The Down for Disruption podcast may contain language and subject matter such as trauma, abuse, sexual violence, mental crisis, homelessness, and other sensitive topics that some may find unsettling or offensive. Views expressed by the host are not that of the Alive Network or its affiliates, nor is any commentary a substitute for medical or clinical advice and treatment. Listeners are welcome to explore the opinions and suggestions of any invited expert as they do so choose, but medical recommendations of any kind will not be made by any Alive Network party nor its affiliates. The Alive Network and its affiliates assume no responsibility nor liability for any undue distress or harm one should cause as a result of any spoken or written commentary by either the host or guests that listeners misinterpret or take out of context. We thank you for your support. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Down for Disruption, the Alive Network's newest podcast for black and brown women over the age of 40. Hey, y'all. Where are my exers? That's right. I am your host and favorite menopausal misbehaved per AJ Wright Mental. That's W-R-I-T-E Mental. Thank you so much for tuning in. Here at Down for Disruption, we support the sisters lifing after 40 while managing a mental health disorder. Oh, child, I'm tired just saying that. Are you newly diagnosed? Have you had a mental health diagnosis for a while? Hell, think you're diagnosable and, and, and have a million and one questions? It's okay. Life is lifing, honey, and I understand. Down for Disruption is the safe sandbox to discuss all things midlife and mental health. Promote support. For those of us who are feeling hopeless, unpack generational trauma and Black family dysfunction and navigate solutions. So basically, we'll disrupt the chaos that is everyday life and hope to turn things right side up. So each week, we'll we'll have a tough conversation followed by moments of reflection and and we'll close with some actionable steps for self-repair. Is that all right? (laughs) Listen, I am not a therapist. Let me get that out of the way. But I am a veteran mental health activist and longtime mental health patient. But as I said, we're, we're in the safe sandbox here and we're going to heal and to laugh and to support one another and talk about stuff that we understand, okay? So I want y'all to pull up, sit up straight and listen to me with your right and left ear because honey, this, this here, <laughs> this is gonna be a wild ride. Hey y'all. Look at us. It is episode two. You guys came back. So I guess episode one didn't frighten everybody away. (laughs) Believe me, that was not my intent. Welcome, welcome back to Down for Disruption podcast in our safe sandbox here. How's everybody doing? Well, if uh, nobody caught episode one, that's where I talked about... um, just a lot of early childhood dysfunction, because remember I said these episodes will be topic specific, but I wanted just to give some context with episode one and episode two, one being early childhood dysfunction. And then this one, episode two, actually what I titled Wire Hangers, How Childhood Dysfunction Shaped Adult Ruin, will just talk about my 
early 20s, you know, so you guys can kind of tie in how zero to about 25 can really, really shape who you are in midlife if you have untreated mental health symptoms. So for for those who were not able to tune in, welcome uh, just to stop right here and go back and take a listen to episode one, or you can just listen to this episode here and then catch up with one later. Either way, I appreciate your support. And those who are returning, everyone who gave a shout out and let me know their thoughts in the Impact Creator Society chat group, as well as on Instagram, Down for Disruption, um, our IG page. Thanks again. So let me pick up from episode one. I think I left off just, again, talk about all the predators that were running amok. And then by the time I was around 12-ish, the four siblings that I had before me, actually five, but the youngest boy, he at that time, you know, went off to New York and was kind of doing his his own thing. He wanted just to be done with this side of the family as far as at least living in the house. And then it was just myself at home. The other four couple were coming in and out, but the one sister that I had, there's what, one two, three before me, but that third one, the second one, I'll say, um, she and her husband, you know, those are the really super religious ones. I didn't see how much until I went to live with them. The ones I call the Black Falwells, they are in Savannah or, or were in Savannah at the time. And she's 12 years older than me. So I just thought it'd be cool. I didn't think my mother was going to do it, but <laughs> I said, hey, I want to go live with my big sister. You know, that way I can get away with stuff, you know, and take a break from mommy dearest house and, you know, all of the chaos. So she, she said, yes, God, why did I do that? First, this woman, you know, she is one, a a carbon copy of our, our mom as much as, you know, she cooks and cleans and tries to be that one who's very domestic, but she's also super strict. Those two nieces that she had, you know, while she was away, she and her husband were deployed, I want to say in Hawaii or or something like that before they had gone to Savannah. And and that's where she had had those two little ones. But everything was, you know, you can't watch anything on TV unless it's Gospel Bill or Gerbert. And then, you know, on Sundays we watched Bobby Jones and then she only hung out with people from the church and she answered the phone, praise the Lord. And, you know, she had a fiery temper just like her mother. Or she, you know, would correct you if you said deviled eggs and said, no, they're angel eggs. Yeah, she was one of those. Every five minutes, like Joe Jackson, I was getting a beaten for something. You know, I talked in class. I didn't do well on the test, everything. A beaten, a beaten, a beaten, you know, because that army sergeant husband of hers, he did not know when to turn it off. 
So I, I was always in trouble. I had to get a poster board and do an art project with paper bags. And I had to make this diagram of chores. I had to make my own <laughs> chore board. And she wouldn't let me use a mop. I had to clean the floor with a rag and a bucket. She said the mop dragged water everywhere. You know, she wanted this perfect little lady. So, you know, she had taught me how to, you know, clean chicken and chop vegetables and walk in kitten heels and there was a rule about something. So yeah, that didn't last. <laughs> I can only put up with so much of it. Two years in, I was already begging to go back to mommy dearest because I could not take her or her husband. Now he wasn't incestuous. He was just strict. And again, he had a temper. And I said, Jesus, you people are 24 behaving like this. Now that I, you know, think back and it was there. And let me stand corrected. What I had mentioned that happened to my eight-year-old niece, I was actually living with that sister in Savannah when my older sister, the eldest girl and her daughter was at our mom's house when that happened. I wasn't at the house then. Then I was still in Savannah. And I, I know this because I'm four years older than her. I was 12. I was away. She and everybody else was still at the house. She was eight. And, and by then, um, around when I was 12, the army had said, like, look, you can't take her to Germany. He got orders to go to Germany. You can't take her to Germany unless you actually adopt her. That wasn't happening. So I had gone back home at this point when I was um, 14. By this time, you know, I'm officially a lady. I'd gotten my period when I was 13. Um, you know, of course, by then I had stopped wetting the bed. I think I stopped wetting the bed about 12 and a half again, which is not uncommon for children who are sexually violated. You just um, have that anxiety and a whole bunch of other things that are going on right then. And I, you know, finally had some peace and quiet now that a lot of people out of the house, except mommy, dearest, oldest boy, like she just couldn't get rid of him. And I, I to this day, don't understand the enabling. I just don't. I mean, this dude sell drugs and get high and running women and taking things that's not his. And she'll put them out. She'll take them back in. She'll put them out. She'll take. I just said, what in the world? You have a known predator living in your house with an, another child. And it. OK, so, you know, she and I um, had never really saw eye to eye. The older I got, I always said it was because I was the only one who had made her feel challenged or who helped her understand that the way she think was completely backwards and her looking the other way all the time was not okay. She had three children and very early on, what, late teens, early 20s? Um, no, she was 33, I think, almost 40. I don't know. I just know, you know, I have siblings that are, as far as the girls, 16, 13, and 12 years older than me. So you, you do the math. 
right? By the time I was in high school, she was 50. Okay, so what's that? 24 years or something? I don't know. And my very best friend, Jay, that I mentioned, her mom was 32. So naturally, I was much closer to her. Her first three girls, they were right up under her, especially that oldest one. You know, I had heard stories from them that that husband, she divorced when she was in Trinidad. And, you know, he used to knock her upside the head and they would hear her cry and all of this kind of jazz. So the four of them, they're thick as thieves. They used to tell her all of their personal business, drove their husbands crazy. And I just never did that. I never told her any of my personal business. I wasn't going to incriminate myself. I wasn't the type to say, yes, mommy, no, mommy, whatever you want, sure thing, I'll do it. She tried to force that same, you know, Claire Huxtable type relationship. It never happened. And I I, I just kind of assumed that's what pissed her off. She could never control me. So she used to do other oddball things to get to me. And it was certain things that just stick out to me that I still remember as I was growing up, just to kind of give you some context. There was this um, one time, you know, and I, I think I mentioned this before, you know, the the oldest boy, boy getting drunk and puking all over the place. And then, you know, she's telling me, I, I know he has a problem you clean it. You're the girl. You know, the boy's just basically not supposed to do anything, I guess, in her little world. And I'm supposed to do everything. And I absolutely refuse. It just sat there. I don't remember to this day if he finally sobered up and did it or she did it. But that was one of two times I really put my foot down and said I wasn't going to do something. The other time he was at home and I don't know what happened, but there were dishes piled up in the sink. And I was just fed up. And she had said, um, you know, you're supposed to wash the dishes. And I said, well, why can't he do it? And she just looked at me and then we had an argument. I thought she was going to backhand me or something. I forget how old I was, but I refused to do the dishes. And this woman sat here and said, I remember that to this day. She said, well, if you're not going to clean the dishes like you're supposed to, we just won't have any dishes. And she was fiery, hot, mad. Mommy dearest took dishes out the sink and started throwing them in the garbage. I can't believe you sitting up here making me throw my <laughs> dishes away. Y'all, I told you that woman ain't rap tight. Check this out. Oh, you ain't heard nothing yet. I got stories for days, but I just can't tell it all to you during this hour. The other one I think about is when she, you know, would say things. You know, I was like a a lot of parents. What do you have to hide? You know, you um, don't pay bills around here and that sort of thing. She would always throw things like that in my face. But I thought it was ridiculous when I told you she would do little eyeball things just to get under my skin. Uh, Because she was just, you know, controlling and mean spirited like that. But she would not allow me to have a lock on my bedroom door. That was her thing. And after a while, I just stopped bothering her about it. And it was always, well, you don't need one on your door. What are you trying to hide? So I literally had to jam my door to my bedroom every night with a chair from the kitchen 
And, you know, and I tried to explain to her, I said, okay, I, you have a known predator living here. And I, and I have to put a chair behind the door because you won't allow me to have one. These <laughs> Caribbean moms are closet psychos. They they just are. They are controlling. They're narcissistic. It's their way or the highway. And so, someone explained to me the other day, well, um, yes, slavery is bad in and of itself everywhere, but it was worse in the Caribbean. So that hatred, that spirit of, you know, punishment and aggression is generational. I said, I I guess that's true because she ain't rap tight. You know, this makes no sense. The other thing that happened, you know, we had our spats while I was at high school, in high school. And then, you know, me calling the cops seems like at least once a month because the oldest boy was doing God knows what. All the way up until about my senior year, and I want to say late junior year or senior year, after not being in my life since I was 10 years old, who shows up? (laughs) The sperm donor, my male parent. And I could not figure out why. I said, after all these years? And one of my sisters, she joked, she said, he he just don't want you to get him for back child support. He knows you're about to turn 18. So he um he wants to be your friend. And I said, What why? What do you want? You know, I'm I'm fine. Hey, I got accepted to college. I'm going away to Grambling in Louisiana. Um, I'm good. He was asking all these questions. No, I don't have any kids. I I didn't make the honor roll, but I didn't flunk out either. You know, people told us at school, if you can't get accepted anywhere else, just go to an HBCU, which is really bad advice. But I guess they were telling the truth because I couldn't get into Rutgers. And Mommy Dearest had a friend who worked in that mission at Seton Hall. But, hey, I was just trying to get away. I didn't know nothing about nothing. I was just trying to get away. And I, I just said, oh, OK, um, who cares? And I don't know what he was up to or anything. He just said, you know, he's uh, gotten remarried, you know, and um, he um, was living in Atlanta and he was doing fine and blah, 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 blah. Okay. I was just shocked that I had gotten a letter from him. I don't believe it had a return address. I just said, what? But I kind of figured later on in life that he and mommy dearest kept up over the years. You know, they they had to. They just kind of kept me out of the picture. I don't think they were still seeing each other. Maybe they did, maybe they didn't. I don't know, but I I firmly believe that in some way that he you know he was still in the picture. Um, but that yeah, that was really interesting. So I graduated, you know, and <laughs> that was even hilarious. Because how about mommy dearest tells me, oh by the way, I can't make a graduation. I got to go to work. I said, excuse me, uh, you over here asking me about the prom. 
Are you going to the prom? I I need another champagne glass to to put in my china cabinet. Uh, you better get dressed. My tomboy tail ain't going to no prom, and I don't even have friends like that. You know that. And it, I was just surprised. I told y'all she she would do things. She looked at me with a smile and said, "I, I can't make it. I got to work." And I'm thinking to myself, Trinidad, you people can get on a plane and go to carnival every spring, but you can't get your tail up and go around the corner to the graduation. You know, the only ride that I had was the eldest girl, her mean tail. She complained like I was just inconveniencing her. Hurry up and you're being late. And that piece of thing on your head is what those people did at the salon. And you took all this time and I don't feel like being out late. And I just, I remember to this day, she was just mad as fire. And I said, this girl, I told y'all, the oldest girl is a lot like our mom. She is just, um, just nasty and mean spirited. You put a crucifix on her head and watch it sizzle. I would not be surprised, but that's what happened with that. And I went to Grambling, Louisiana in 95 for no other reason than it was <laughs> far, literally. I, I remember going on the Black College tour junior year and just picking one of those schools. I didn't know anything about it. I wasn't really paying attention. I just wanted to get far away. Any, mini money, mo. And I distinctly remember to this day looking like a deer in headlights when a campus tour guide had asked if any of us had questions. And I'm looking around and nobody knows what to ask. Mostly, I'd say 90% of us standing there were first time college kids. So I, I had never been too far away from mommy dearest reign of terror. So I didn't know what to ask. And, and I was the first, you know, again, to leave. I, I just said, okay, I'll pick here. And the oldest girl and her husband was the one that drove me because mommy dearest had asked her to. I was surprised that she actually did so. I don't know what kind of financial arrangements they made for gas. I did not know how to drive. I couldn't help them, you know, which isn't uncommon. I mean, in the North, we have trains and we have buses. We walk everywhere. But I I was on my way to the Gram and I got dropped off and <laughs> y'all get ready. Okay. Grab your sparkly red pens and your journals. Y'all know I'm going to tell you how to write something, but I'll let you know exactly when. Okay. So this is what happened. I was 17, as I said, when I started running and I ran for years. How many of you all ran, right? <laughs> Thought she was just grown and said it out loud, loud and proud. I can't wait till I graduate. Can't wait till I get grown. I'm going to leave this place and I ain't never coming back. Was it just me? <laughs> yeah, I ran all right. I ran away from my mother's house, mommy dearest, right, at 17 to keep from getting pregnant by a relative or to keep from going to prison for setting the whole damn house on fire with everybody in it. Trust, at that point, I could care less. I ran away from a predator at home to a college campus while just a baby with grown men. That's how I ended up in Louisiana. 
So first thing I noticed at Grambling is it was in the sticks. In 95, there was literally nothing there but the campus. A convenience store, a chicken shack, just a few mom and pop places and a whole lot of black folks. There, there was nothing there. Just no buses, no trains, no entertainment. I could count the street lights. You could barely get a cab. I think the nearest town was called Ruston or something. It was about six or seven miles away. And people were just so country. It was, it was a different world. They did things slowly and the way they talked, the way they moved, you name it. Everything was yes, ma'am, and no, ma'am. And nobody questioned anything or ever spoke up for themselves. I, I wasn't used to that. If anything, Northern kids got popped in the mouth for not saying Miss So-and-so or Mr. So-and-so when addressing adults. But we weren't yes ma'am and no ma'am and people all day. And I really didn't see a lot of that until I moved to Savannah. But the other strange thing I noticed is that I would get compliments and stares from legions of Black men, which confused me and it made me uncomfortable because I had just come from an environment, not even weeks prior, and all throughout school where I was told I was ugly or I wasn't this or I wasn't that. Nobody's going to ever want you. You know, I mean, yeah, the boys at school are usually really dumb, we know. And and half the time, the ones who tease girls probably like them. But I guess I just heard it so often. I mean, I didn't wear a lot of name brand clothes. Um, I've had these huge self size 12 wide feet on my near six foot frame since eighth grade. I just stood out. And I wore a size 12. So imagine me being almost six feet, rail thin with these huge feet. I used to always say, I look like a duck. I don't like how I looked, you know, and people would make fun of everything. And and I I guess I had a shape, you know, my peers would tell me, you need to put on a girdle, girl. Your butt just wiggles everywhere. And that's what somebody was always, even today, whether I'm small or large, somebody's always making a comment about my rear end. So I was really self-conscious, you know. And when older men in my neighborhood were trying to throw out some kind of bait or flirted, I just thought they were being perverts. So I, I honestly didn't know what to believe. Very quickly, I saw that the two very uppity roommates I had who had been roommates for five semesters already, did not want me there. So you know what happens next? It wasn't long before I found myself in the arms of the first country bumpkin who didn't make me feel weird. He he was one of many who told me that I had a nice shape or and whatever his, you know, country term was for a large rare end, you know. Living there and eating all of that Cajun food with the spice and the sodium and ugh. Oh, I mean, I like Cajun food, but it was just a lot. You know, in the West Indies, we we eat completely differently. So that was um, an adjustment. And 
I remember mouthing off as usual or rolling my eyes at the cafeteria ladies who seemed to move slower anytime one of those football players was in line. Lord, those GSU ball players. I swear they ruled that place. And even women twice their age stopped breathing anytime they entered a room. Their egos, man. I tried to stay to myself, at least in in the beginning, that, that first semester. It was hard to socialize. I would just sit in a corner somewhere, just feeding my face, stuffing food down my throat. I had a huge appetite. You know, of course, until some uninvited guest would show up and tell me to slow down as if I had asked for anybody else's opinions. Right. I didn't realize I ate fast or I even walked fast, which I hear is a symptom of something. So here's where you write. Okay, how about and I don't I don't want you to go, you know, writing down long sentences or anything, but I just want you to make some tick marks, kind of like with tic-tac-toe. Just make some tick marks. Anytime I say the word symptom, just make a tick mark. And I'll, I'll tell you why at the end, you know, um, just if, if you heard in, in episode one, what I did with that list of symptoms for depression. You you take a certain situation and you put it under a particular symptom and you start to say, wow, that's what that behavior was. I could have been living with a mental health disorder this whole time and had no idea. So yeah, I was sitting at the end of my seat, kind of stiff. And I mean, to this day, I don't like my back towards the door. People used to call me paranoid. Yeah symptom. Like I said, everything down there was slow. There was literally nothing to do but have sex, party, drink, go to games, which was a no for me because I hate crowds, and get high. And that's what people did. So I spent a lot of those months feeling angry and feeling out of place. What freshman does not, especially out-of-state students, you know, to a degree, I guess, but, you know, f- folks would tell me I had a stink attitude, even if I did smile and laugh a lot. But when I smiled and laughed a lot, they told me I was immature. So, of course, I self-soothe with sex and food symptom and the weather down there. Man, that heat was something terrible, like nut sex over a campfire. That roasted air made my skin edge and it dried out my hair. I swore the weatherman had it in for me because it seemed like I had back-to-back classes that were on opposite ends of the campus. You know what I mean? Both semesters. Good grief. I was just happy um, when fall hit. Uh, Again, I'm from Jersey, so I loved the winter. I I still like the winter. I just don't like the snow. And and the people on campus had told me during the, the Black College tour that you know, it didn't get cold down there. So I didn't take a coat. One day somebody told me, you know, get your coat ready. It's, 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 it's about to be that time of year. And okay, I'm confused. I was repeatedly told that it's, it's nice weather. 
Well, I just just woke up one day and there was frost on the window. And I said, I'm going to be real, real happy when I found the first person who told me, it don't get cold down here. We in a swamp and smack them. But um, I'll say that Mommy Dearest had been, you know, Western Union named me money, if that's the word, on um, a regular or as often as she could, what little amount that she was able to. So I didn't want to ask for anything to avoid a speech. And a lot of times I use money, if not for textbooks, probably on food, just blooming money, not saving or anything. And I was shocked when the weather changed. So there I was in jeans and a T-shirt looking like some fool having to swallow my pride and call home. And she said all she had was $40. So I, I bummed a ride from who? I don't know. And I went to some store and all I could get with that amount was a light jacket. Even back then with those prices, I don't know why I just got a light jacket and it did not help. Um, I had to have somebody from back home to send me a couple of sweaters and I just made do until the spring or I just stayed inside. I really wasn't interested in anybody's Bayou Classic or homecoming. None of that nonsense faced me. I just wanted to ignore the world, get drunk, and masturbate. I mean, it is what it is. Symptom. Now, I did go into a Gramblinite interest meeting. That that was the student paper. I'm pretty creative, and I was always good with you know writing and composition, science too. But I love stories, and oh, English was my favorite class. So there was enough drama on campus to cover. Believe me, you had recent alumni changing the grades of their friends financial aid, not having people's meals and scholarship money situated weeks after school began, unless, of course, you were a football player. Of course, folks who weren't even in, in enrolled living illegally in dorms on the hush-hush and quite a few rumors about illegal activities. So I, I really found a place there. Finally, the one bright spot of my one year at Grambling, I found a, a place with all the other writers and weirdos and abstract people whose feet weren't on the ground, as well as professional journalists. And they taught me a lot. I mean, how to interview, how to structure and tell my story and you know how to report news, how to respond to a gag order, what to do when tempers flare, reading body language. I mean, I've really learned a lot from them and certain techniques I still use today. I enjoyed my time there. And there was one time, I don't know if I was watching too much Matlock or something. Um, I thought I was doing something big when I I covered some story. I want to say it was a, a, either a Grambling staff member or a former staff member. Somebody on campus was in the middle of an investigation or being questioned about something and had been dodging news cameras for days. Well, I took it upon myself to go behind the building where this meeting was because I just had a hunch 
that, you know, he probably parked out of sight or something. And I didn't know which car. I just knew I, I was going to wait for him with my recorder in hand, like like they do on TV. And he came outside. Hot damn, I was right. <laughs> Every step he took, I took. I swear I wouldn't let him get around me. Almost made the both of us fall. I'm actually not sure what happened, but I do remember getting at least one or two questions answered. You couldn't tell me nothing. The um, newspaper staff had a policy that your byline had to state Gramlinite guest or something like that for a minimum of four articles, I think it were. I think it was, you were not a considered Gramlinite staff until you had ran five. So as a creative, I felt all kind of special and accomplished after that fifth article. For once, somebody saw that I was good for something. Somebody gave me a pat on the back for doing a good job, I even rolled up five copies in a rubber band and sent them home like, hey, I'm writing in the paper and all this. Although I have no idea why. Nobody, (laughs) nobody in Irvington, trust me, took an interest in anything that I did. But I continued to write stories and talk to strangers and ask for rides for people to go absolutely nowhere. And I drank a lot of Liquor, you know, at, at one point I really started to decline and I I guess I didn't realize it. Symptom. And I felt trapped often. I, I, I got stares for not combing my hair sometimes and excessive babbling about God knows what. I already can't sit still even now. So I just, again, stick out like a sore thumb and my stubborn tail still wouldn't go home. Actually, that Christmas, I had visited a friend from Savannah. I thought it was weird that her family went to church on New Year's Eve and not party like my Caribbean people. So when I um, had no money and nowhere to go for spring break, I just stayed in the dorm, completely bored listening to music every day until the dorm mother came up and responded to a noise complaint about my therapy. (laughs) But anyway, I just couldn't wait to get out of that godforsaken place. And I wanted to transfer, you know, my grades, even after a year, still weren't good enough to get into Rutgers or anywhere else. I didn't flunk out. I just wasn't the sharpest tool in the shed. But um, like every other northerner, there at Grambling, who was just looking for anywhere to go, I transferred, I sure as hell did, to a school in Atlanta. <laughs> Look, it, it, it gets interesting. But finally, out of options for the summer, I, I did go home. Mommy dearest, oldest child stayed out of my way for the most part, not entirely, but for the most part. And finding a summer job was surprisingly difficult. I guess I uh, divided my time between counting down the days until I left for another Southern adventure and feeling like a total failure because I swore I would never come back to that house. Yeah, that's, that's basically how that summer went. 1996, fall. 
Now, it, it that was a complete culture change. I mean, a total shock for a lot of reasons, you know, and, and Atlanta was just this pro-Black place. It, it was a mixture, you know, of a different world and school days and the Cosby show, but mixed with a lot of victimhood and entitlement and helplessness all at the same time. And as far as sperm donor goes, I don't know which happened in which order, but I do know I had this one cousin who was selling CDs or T-shirts or something out of his trunk, right? And he had stopped me and said, hey, you got a second? You know what? You look like somebody I know. And I'm thinking to myself, dude, is that your best line? Watch this. God don't like ugly. So I kept walking until I heard him say, nah, come here, sis. You look like my uncle Jimmy. I felt the universe suck its air right out of me. It took its air back. I turned around and I said, excuse me? And he repeated himself, y'all. Yes, before you ask, I look (laughs) just like that man. And salesman cousin looks just like his father. You know, all the brothers, all the uncles, everybody in the family looks like Uncle Jimmy, a.k.a. sperm donor, the entire crew. They look just alike. And I, I vividly remember going to the home of one of their relatives and meeting damn near a battalion of folks who looked just like me and the baby boy in every room. Like I said, I can't remember which happened first. Was it me meeting the cousin or me going to the reunion? Because even though he has family all over Atlanta, um, I don't think everybody found out at the same time. But you could just slice, you know, all the awkward tension in the room with a knife then. I think that semester, Mommy Dearest came down. I want to say she came to Atlanta once while I was living there. But was she there? Why was she? She was the side chick. I'm not sure. He was, you know, remarried at that time. But still, I can't figure out why she would come around. But I swear, I can see her in my head in that lady's living room. You know, the aunt or godmother, whoever she was. But anyhow... It was an interesting gathering. I mean, people were nice. They were sweet, but, you know, he's everybody's can-do-no-wrong favorite Uncle Jimmy. Every kid has a, a favorite uncle, right? So I spent the first hour hearing, Uncle Jimmy? Uncle Jimmy got another one out here. No, not Uncle Jimmy. He wouldn't do that. For real? So, yeah, that that was eventful. Maybe in another episode, I'll tell you about how his uh, ex-wife found out about me and the baby boy. Uh, I want to say my junior year of high school. But like I said, you can't blame the kids, man. So out of 125,000 family members that was in the house that day, I got cool with a small handful because clearly I don't do 
family members, not even the ones I know. I, I swear, I just don't have that gene. And I don't trust people. Symptom. Back then, I, I felt like I didn't need anything or anybody. And I could do it all by myself. I don't, I don't need you. Symptom. Although, oddly enough, I was always asking for something. I was asking for help. I was asking for directions. Always, you know, yeah, just always being needy. Um, so while I was sitting there and people were talking around me and treating me like, you know, some sideshow act, I I zoned out. I daydreamed a lot as a kid and I just really check out at times when I feel uncomfortable. Sometimes I don't even realize it, you know, but I, I got good at <laughs> tuning folks out. I I just hated being questioned. It, it, it was just easier for me to lie and not be bothered with anything or anybody, even if something wasn't my fault. You know, I was always d- d- defensive, which naturally made me argumentative. And in my heart, I just wanted to be heard, but I always felt like nobody would hear me. So I needed to get my point across. And quite often I was downright combative in those days because I would always feel attacked. (laughs) A couple of symptoms. Uh, I'll give you one. Poor insight into one's own problems, right? I didn't know. I knew I was mad a lot. I just thought it was always everybody else's fault. In my almost 19-year-old mind, I assumed that every problem I had was because somebody else had wronged me. One does not see their own faults or even how different, good or bad, that they are from others until they're, you know, immersed in different experiences and spend lengthy amounts of time with uh, other demographics. Now, that is an understatement for Clark Atlanta University, okay? I don't know about now, but in 96, Lord, for one, the fashion show that it was was really interesting, me personally, I was used to not having very much, as, you know, as far as stuff, whether it was clothes or anything else. I didn't realize that wasn't the case for my, you know, peers until, um, like, for example, someone saw the inside of my closet and then asked where the rest of my clothes was because I had about four or five T-shirts hanging up and a couple of pairs of jeans. Again, lost on me. Or I had a guy come over to my dorm in my room once, and he just sarcastically said as he looked around, oh boy, another visit to the room with no TV and nothing on the walls. I guess I didn't even notice. I I was the type back then, I, I could do bare minimum then. Bare minimum does not work for me today, but I, I was just happy to have a bed and a door with a lock. Now. <laughs> right? I was just happy to be in a city with trains and buses. And that was a whole adventure. Uh, I was so lost, y'all. The first time I took martyr, oh my God. Even with the map on the wall, I couldn't follow along. <laughs> There's a reason why I call myself the Black Blonde. Anyhow, I just stood on the platform and took in the scenery as I gathered my thoughts. That was enough for me. It was like a scene out of 
Baps. Yeah, everybody with the brightly colored hair, even, you know, down to little girls and and women with gold teeth. I never seen, you know, five out of six women with gold caps. I'm going, no, this, where am I? And, and all the guys screaming at girls to get their attention. Hey, hey, I, I, I didn't see that <laughs> growing up. I'm sorry. Hear me. If the hood had a mascot, it stopped at five point station and take a piss and vomit at the same time. That's just what the ATL was for me in 96. I, I don't remember where exactly my destination was that first martyr excursion. I just remember it was something head and it was some, I remember getting lost. The confusion, <laughs> my obvious just being blonde and some local person's humor, humorous reaction went on like that for some months until, you know, I found my way and learned the city. Meanwhile, I did the best to look for work and, of course, find food. Um, I really didn't have an advisor that first semester at Clark. I can't remember why. I do remember witnessing, though, the uh, same staff incompetence and disorganization on some level like I did when I was at Graham. I mean, it, it was October, I think, and I still didn't have a meal plan or my refund check, you know, things like that. I was trying to keep up in some pretty tough science courses that were mostly taught by people with language barriers on top of adjusting to at least one or two people in sperm donors' family referring to me as that AJ. Oh, that AJ. I mean, it, it was just annoying, you know? It's it's like I just couldn't catch a break. But two of his sisters, my aunts, Auntie Kitty, who has gone on to meet the Lord, God rest her soul, and Aunt Martha, the pound cake queen, <laughs> were really sweet to me, and they basically took me under their wing. I have said often, I had a mother my you know whole life, but it wasn't until college that I was mothered and properly parented. And, and that was because of Aunt Kitty and, and Aunt Martha. Right. Um, sperm donor showed up a few more times before he disappeared for good, but not before. Save the day, Aunt Kitty put him in check this one particular time that I remember. Uh, it was hilarious, y'all. Somebody came to the dorm to pick me up. I forget who. And, and took me to sperm donor and his new wife's house. She was really, really sweet. Uh, a social worker. I tell you what. That Mr. Jimmy, he knew how to pick him. She was a busy woman, very professional, all into her career, had her own money, her own home, great credit. She had one child that was grown, so all he had to do was move in, and he did. The uh, happy couple and Aunt Kitty and two relatives, I think, that lived across the street or in the neighborhood or something. And another person and myself were sitting in the living room 
And we were just listening to my sperm donor brag about all kinds of stuff. My baby is smart and my baby is in college and she's going to be a doctor. And I politely reminded that joker that he had no part in that. Then he started to point at different parts of the house talking about how beautiful it was and Speaking of all that he and his wife shared, and we got this nice house and we got this nice yard and all that land back there. And we, Aunt Kitty cut him off real quick and said, you ain't got shit. And I, up to that point, I had not heard her use profanity. (laughs) Those are her things, is what she told him. Y'all know I laughed. I got a good laugh. (laughs) But, you know, I, I did try to talk to him privately. Not um for any no particular reason. I I believe me, I wasn't sad or looking for an apology or or anything like that. I happened to see him in the kitchen by himself, and I, I guess if anything, I just wanted to know, you know, why now? Why do you I mean, besides the obvious, what do you want? Things like that. Let's just say when I sat down, he stood up. <laughs> he he did not want to have a heart to heart. I did manage to get out of him that uh, I have two other sisters that his family knows nothing about. I mean, they did when I said something, but he he's got two other kids out there. None of us even to this day have ever met them. He just said that one should be my age and one should be older than me uh, and that their mom is Nigerian and they last lived in Newark. So yeah, the dude was a rolling stone. I, you know, I didn't care. I just wanted to work, never go back home, go to school, you know, become an OBGYN, learn Spanish and buy a car and have my own place and be the voice of a cartoon character. <laughs> I was serious. I, my animated tale, I always wanted to, you know, try v- voiceover work. I mean, I don't know of any successful voiceover actresses with a speech impediment, but hey, there's a first time for anything, uh, for everything. Now, the next stunt was one that I pulled. I don't know why I wasted my time. I guess I just felt like humoring myself. This one time when sperm donor came to visit me at the new residential apartment that was Clark Atlanta University's newest dorm. And I heard that the Olympic staff and even some news reporters were housed there that summer. I I don't know. Maybe it was true because I was able to make free long distance calls (laughs) without question for a couple of months. So I decided to play spoiled brat one day with Mr. Sperm Donor. And I said to him, hey, I need some money for books. And he said, "Uh, I guess I give you $40. What is it with that number? He said, I guess I give you $40 if I got it. I said, wow. I mean, I wasn't expecting anything from him, but I was just shocked at how cheap he was, especially because he had four grown children, four grown kids before me. And I think two went to college. I don't know. I said, uh, okay, well, I never got that car when I was 16, like a lot of teenagers. That time he almost cut me off. He said, well, I guess we could get you a bike. I mean, he was just so dismissive and nasty. At that point, I said, why did you even show back up? 
I mean, to, to make yourself feel better. I don't remember what he said. I just know I zoned out. I, I completely <laughs> checked out. Symptom, not long after that, Mommy Dearest decided to show both sides of her behind. You see, before I left to go to CAU, I got into yet one more verbal altercation, a little bit more than verbal, with her oldest boy. And he got tired of my mouth, he got pissed, and he swung at me, and that fist landed on the left side of my cheek. Watch this. I called the cops, as I had done many times before. They cursed him out. I can't remember if they arrested him or what happened. All I know, Mommy Dearest was livid, because y'all know that's her favorite son. And I had to go to court. Her exact words were, why the hell you keep calling cops to my house? So your brother hit you. What did you do? That don't make you some grown woman to be calling the house, the, the, the cops to my house every five minutes. Oh, trust me, y'all. She barked. I mean, oh, she barked. Um, I was used to her yelling, but she went, I mean, to like the dog whistle level that day. And for once, she got to me. And I think that she could really sense it because she started to calm down. I felt lower than dirt. Symptom. I had always felt like, or or I kind of pieced it together later on, at least before she got her green card, that maybe she was afraid of getting deported. And, and at least, I mean, that's the only thing I could come up with. You know, uh, why would you be upset about me calling the cops on a known predator under your roof? Anyhow, because she came to court with me, the judge had asked me, was the statement I about to give my own or did anybody rehearse the statement with me? I told him it was all my own. My mother was just there to be there. And so he listened to what I had to say, but he scheduled a court date for October or November or something. I can't remember. I just know it was in the fall. And I'm not sure why I said, like, I didn't ask him any questions. I was just thinking to myself, I'm here. Why do I have to come back? I don't know. I just know he scheduled a court date. Right, y'all? Okay, here's where it gets almost laughable, but not f funny at all. I made up my mind that if I got an opportunity to talk to that judge or any other judge, that with every bone in my body and every memory that I can pull out of my head, I was going to tell him or her everything every violation that had ever gone on against me and every other child and by whom in that house. Even if nothing could be done at that point, I was going to get my lick back. Now watch this. When Mommy Dearest and I spoke the month of the court date, you know, again, I, I don't remember when, October or November of 96, I had asked her when she was going to send me money to buy the ticket and she said she didn't have it. I said, wait, what? I, I, I thought I was hearing things. She knew I had to fly home for this court date so I could happily oversee her oldest boy escorted to jail. And so we went back and forth for a few 
minutes and she's telling me just so nonchalantly, I don't have the money to be flying to you back and forth up here. Plane tickets are expensive. You have to drop the charges. Again, the universe took its air back. I pleaded with her and I told her I couldn't drop the charges. She knew why. And this wasn't fair. And he hit me first. And and at that point, I could no longer hide the lump in my throat as I tried to yell. And finally, she cut me off and said in the most sinister, not even sarcastic, but the most sinister tone, you want school clothes, don't you? I mean, I heard the smirk in her voice. I was bewildered. I mean, wide-eyed. That was low, y'all. Even for her, I couldn't say anything. She just repeated herself. Drop the charges. I just hung up the phone. I mean, pissed is what I was. <laughs> you hear me? But I did. I dropped the charges and cried. Like I, I did uh, a lot more in those days than I think I had any other time in my life. And I wished her dead. And I was in a funk for the rest of the month, as you could imagine. You know, oddly enough, the worse men treated me, the more I gravitated towards them in some way. You know, I, I dated this supervisor when I worked at um, a pizza hut. Anyhow, we had a visiting supervisor and he was a wisecrack, a cute wisecrack and and um, tall, but you know, he was a wisecrack, always cracking jokes. And he complimented me, you know, because he saw that I, I did my job. I, I do have Caribbean blood in me. If we don't do nothing else, we work. Right. And I was good at training others. So we hit it off. And but before his time was up there or before I quit, I can't remember. You know, we had a couple of rendezvous, but one of them went left. It was a pretty bad winter in Atlanta. Um, a lot of the buses weren't running. Some of the roads were just completely impassable. So basically, wherever a person was, <laughs> you were just stuck. And it was a weird situation that night. We we went to some guy's house. It was a friend or his brother, a family member. It was a guy. I do remember that. And his girlfriend. So, and, and her 10-year-old daughter was in her room. I know, her mama trifling. But things started off consensual. But um, he got rough really rough. So I told him to slow down and he ignored me. Then he kind of did this bear hug thing where I couldn't break away from him and got rougher. So I told him to stop and get off of me, but he ignored me. Yeah, that's how that night ended. And where was I going to go? You know, the roads were impassable. Who was I going to call? I didn't have an address. I was just stuck there for the night, waiting for the next day so he could give me a ride back to campus. I guess I should have pressed charges against him too, huh? But I, I figured no one would believe me. And yeah, 
it was years later before I, you know, uttered a word. And that was really only to one or two friends of mine. But let's just say I met a lot of jerks while I lived in the A. Um, the most memorable one was the one night stand with a guy I didn't find out was bisexual until I woke up. Y'all, t- tell me how this makes any sense. Uh, you know, so we had the one night stand and I'm opening my eyes, sort of, kind of. I'm waking up because I can hear people talking. Somebody's disturbing me and I'm trying to sleep. I wake up, this fool, mind you, it's his house, his bedroom, nice house. And he's sitting at the edge of the bed and there's a guy standing in front of him and they're talking. Just casual conversation. Oh, this is AJ. Hey, hey, lady, what's up? How you doing? I'm going, wait, what? Who does this? And the sad thing is, that's the second time that has happened to me. Is this a thing they do in the South? There is no part of me that would ever walk into somebody's room when they have company and hold a conversation. I don't want to be in your living room having a conversation while you have company. But anyway, him and the guy was just talking. And I remember so short as I'm sitting here, as I sat up, this guy, the one whose house it is, his back is turned towards me, but I can hear the change of tone in his voice, right, y'all? And I could see him, you know, clap his hands together. And he asked his friends, he said, so what are your plans today? Are you going to go get your ass busted? He literally just asked this man, was he going to go get his ass busted? And I'm like, wait, where'd that tone come from? Last night he had a deep voice. Uh, Y'all, I can't make this stuff up, right? And let's not forget about the guys who tell you, I don't know you like that when it comes to oral sex. After you're at the house and in their bedroom, but they still want to screw. We're all right enough to screw, but they don't want to go down. I wonder if men know exactly what they're saying to women and how that comes across when they say that, right? Then there was the weirdo who wanted to talk about fries while I was having an orgasm. He and I were just on two different wavelengths. I I forgot how we met. I just know we had truth or dare sex in the employee parking lot at this one place where I was working as a temp. I did meet a few good ones, like (laughs) my college sweetheart. I'll I'll tell y'all about him in another episode. I actually wrote a short story about him one time. Yeah, he, he, he was a sweetheart. His friends could not understand what he saw in me. And as I said before, I could not understand the capacity of his patience. He he was a sweetheart. And then there was some who were halfway decent, but bold. Now, see, back in those days, I dated married men and I did not care because I figured, you know what? I was the nice one and, and I was always being done wrong. So one day I just said to hell with it. And if they can cheat, I can cheat too. So... I should have taken the hint when he whispered to me one day. He said, you know what? We'll, 
well, we should have a threesome. I said, excuse me? He said, yeah, we should have a, you know, a threesome with my wife because she'd been wanting to try it, you know, and then that way we could keep seeing each other. I mean, she can't get mad if she want to meet you. And I'm looking at this fool. Uh, no, sir, that's, that's not what we're going to do. And yeah, I should have taken a hint, but mine, ignorant tale, I, I kept seeing him even after he stood me up, sort of, kind of, at a car dealership. Y'all, I was so embarrassed. This man had me sitting there for almost five hours. I had food in my hand, a basket of laundry, because I don't know if I took the bus. I think I took the bus from the laundromat. He was supposed to pick me up, drop me back off at my apartment, and then we were supposed to go spend some time someplace. Yeah, plans got thwarted. You know, just all kinds of stories he gave me. And he finally came uh, five hours later with an attitude. Now, my fault, I didn't have money for a cab and it would have been too much anyway. I don't remember what dealership. I just remember it was far away from where I lived. I guess I just had a bad habit of not carrying any money or not carrying extra money in those days because I foolishly thought, well, why do I need money if I wasn't planning on spending it? I knew I had enough money to wash clothes and get some food. It, I, Yeah, I, I didn't expect him to leave me there. But at the same time, you know, it goes to show you again, I was so ill prepared when I left home and was ready to throw couches when people would tell me things like I left home too soon. I couldn't stand it, you know, and it, it's wild how I swan dived from one trauma to the next most of those years, you know, mid to late 90s and didn't even know it. My arrogant, wannabe hardcore tale just thought, you know, I was taking names later and somehow doing better by simply moving from one jarring incident to another, another bad idea is, is what it really was. Um, call it what it is, simply because I overcame something. If I had an out, I had an option. That's the way I thought. I wasn't making the connection between early childhood trauma and, and my uber poor response to the world while out here trying to get my sea legs. I mean, who does? Self-sabotage wasn't in my vocabulary. This is another reason why I go on my rants about preparing young people to adult with practical independent living skills before leaving home. And make no mistake, it isn't just 18 and 19 year olds who are out here completely clueless, living from pillow to post. You, you have some women in our peer group Right, ladies? The ones over 40 never left home or if they have, they've never lived alone. They, they've always had help or a soft place to land. Is it too far-fetched of an idea to propose that one, especially a woman, be taught how the hell to live independently, if nothing else, before venturing out on their own? I mean, I had experienced a string of emotionally abusive situationships. 
obviously, and one live-in relationship where a guy about three times my size snatched me up by my t-shirt collar and, and reminded me eye to eye to never throw things at him on top of getting evicted from my very first apartment, eventual homelessness, and having a car slam into me while I was jaywalking one day, all within my first two years of leaving home. What? If if anyone can help it, explain everything there is to know about you know, situational awareness and personal safety and discernment. Ooh, renting <laughs> to a young girl or a grown woman beforehand, right? And just, here's an example. Humor me. We'll call her Nikki. How about while Nikki is still under caretaker or some enabler's roof, require her to get a job? But explain things like taxes and credit and budgeting, savings, rainy day funds, et cetera, and all of that, like an H&R Block employee or something, right? Explain it all. Make her sign a legally enforceable lease, you know, where, where said enabler will call her or him typical, is the landlord. And, you know, you can find these leases on Google, get them notarized, and uh, help Nikki understand clearly what a 15%, I know that's steep, but humor me, a 15% late fee means. Help her get it. You are teaching her life skills. Teach her how to write a check, even today, and, and show her how to balance a checkbook just in case she has to. Uh, hello, life skills. After a few months on the job, put a couple of bills in Nikki's name. Make sure she understands why the first couple of months are usually higher, especially utilities and phone. I want Mr. and Mrs. Typical to also see to it that Nikki knows how to prepare meals and, and make a grocery list and cook and cut coupons, you name it, survival skills. This is your responsibility, Mr. or Ms. Typical, because you are preparing her for the real world. I wish somebody would have explained these things to me when I left home, but of course not. Now, you know, like I said, 90s kids, we are survivalists. We just got put out at 18 and weren't expected to figure it out. Uh, how? Okay, many of us did, and clearly some of us did not. Uh, survivalist or no survivalist. Some things really have to be taught, and, and, and that's okay. Lastly, Nikki should also be shown basic home repair and poor man's first aid. She should know how to change a lock or, I mean, heck, a light bulb, you know, plunge a toilet, snake a drain. Sheesh. Teach the girl something. You know, uh, why you should keep ginger and ginger ale and peppermints in the house. I mean, anything. Just just help <laughs> Nikki out. Like I said, there are grown, grown women who have no clue what I'm talking about because somebody has always carried them. You know, like I said, these are just thoughts. Just humor me there for <laughs> a second. Uh-uh. Yeah, I I left early because I had to. What was the alternative? One last um, story real quick. At one of the many apartments that I had in the city, 
Uh, matter of fact, this one was on Camelton Road, not too far from that Pizza Hut, uh, a studio, because that's all I could afford. I was, uh, I had company and I was talking to some dude. I think I met him at Morehouse. I can't remember. Um, but somewhere near campus. And he stopped by to see me. Whether we had sex or not, I can't remember. I just know we had a, a bad argument and he was about to leave. So I said, okay, just give me a hug before, you know, we say goodbye and I'll walk you to the door. Because I already knew that was going to be the last day that I saw him. He refused any kind of gesture. And, and you know, he started walking towards the door until I stopped him and demanded my hug. That boy must have looked at me like I lost my mind. I stretched my arms out and and I demanded a hug. That's that's what I wanted. You know, just just stopping the man from moving. Okay, AJ, what was wrong? You know, yeah, a lot of this could have been avoided if fill in the blank, a whole lot of things. And that time he just looked at me, not out of shock that last time, but out of anger. And I yelled at that point, I'll let you leave once you hold me. And do you hear me? (laughs) I'll let you leave. Wow. Talk about an ultimatum. Finally, he just maneuvered his way around me and my couch and stomped out of there. I was crushed. Symptoms. Yeah. Those situationships really made me feel like the guys back home who told me I was nothing my whole life were right. That's that's all that kept coming back to my head. So how many symptoms you guys got? <laughs> that's a lot, right? There's more. A lot more twists and turns to my story because, you know, I didn't leave Atlanta until 99. And um, you'll learn a lot more about my life as it unfolded and exploded and pieced together and unfolded some more and how I'm doing today as we ride this train, the down for disruption train together. But I like to, again, use behaviors to explain symptoms since we're talking about mental health. And we're going to talk about that next week in episode three. As a matter of fact, our very first guest, therapist Aaliyah Jackson, is going to stop by the safe sandbox and explain what one has to do with the other. Mental diagnosis and diagnosable symptoms as it relates to how we feel and conduct ourselves and relate to the world every day. She will tie in how unaddressed childhood function that you know, I spoke about in episode one and how we function in the world as adults relate, okay? So for example, you could go back through this episode and match some of the things I've experienced with some of the following symptoms. Let's see who was paying attention. For example, feeling hopeless, irritable, Difficulty concentrating, remembering things, loss of interest, feeling empty or worthless, feeling despair, 
guilty, feeling pessimistic, maybe even self-doubt, those are the depressive symptoms of bipolar disorder, right? Okay, what about feeling happy or overly excited, talking very quickly, what they call pressured speech, feeling self-important uh, or, you know, you can say um, not arrogant, there's a, a word for it, but inflated, inflated. Um, also, grandiosity, you know, that person that always has about 15 irons in the fire, that person who's a d- d- dreamer, about 18 things going on at one time, always have a list, you know, being easily distracted, agitated, illogical thinking. Those are the manic symptoms of bipolar disorder, right? What about feeling nervous or restless or having a sense of impending danger or experiencing panic, maybe trembling, feeling weak or tired, trouble concentrating or thinking about anything else besides that present thing that's causing one to worry, I'm pretty sure y'all can pick something up out of my story that these relate to. Those are symptoms of anxiety disorder. Is it starting to make sense? Right? And and what about um, avoiding certain situations that remind you of a traumatic event? What about being easily startled or having flashbacks to things that remind you of something traumatic. Those are symptoms of PTSD. You see what I mean? How one has to do with the other. I just wanted to give y'all some context with these first two episodes. So I promise all of the others won't be this loaded. So going forward, the episodes will be topic specific and I'll try to bring on a guest to share their expertise every few weeks or Maybe every week, if if we can pull this off. Okay, (laughs) y'all. Okay. Another day of healing on the books, my sandbox champions. We did it, ladies. Did y'all enjoy today's episode? Hey, listen, shoot me an email at lowercase letter I disrupt at disruption.buzz. I disrupt at disruption.buzz. Of course, we're starting a buzz. I'd love to hear from each and every last one of y'all. Now, again, while I, AJ, do not give clinical advice, we, we do welcome your feedback here about the show, any thoughts on, you know, how you're currently healing or adjusting the diagnosis, anything you want to share, maybe a a testimony or anything like that, or heck, maybe just one event. Look, AJ, I get it. Life is lifing, right? Perhaps you've already started some type of uh, self-repair routine that you want to share. Okay, let us know. And and where are my generational curse breakers? <laughs> Y'all better pull up. Anybody having that tough conversation with mama or somebody else who looked the other way? Breathe. I get it. 
I get it. And we are all in the safe sandbox to heal together. Be sure to subscribe to Down for Disruption on the Alive podcast app on iOS and Android, where you can support this podcast monthly and and share your favorite moments there as well. Follow Down for Disruption on Instagram at Down for Disruption. Once again, the Down for Disruption podcast is the safe sandbox for black and brown women over the age of 40 who are struggling to manage midlife while battling a mental health diagnosis. We are out here, ladies. Thank you so much for your time as usual. I had a blast. I am your favorite menopausal misbehave her. AJ Wright Mental, that's W-R-I-T-E Mental. See you in the sandbox next Saturday at 1 o'clock Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Have a good Saturday, y'all. Bye-bye.